Science. Hi everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Jesse Case. And I'm Andy Wood. Well, look look do- at us. Look. Yeah, we're doing it. Yeah, we, we almost got that smooth after... <laughs> nearly 500 episodes well done there's a there's a few mental flubs in there there's a few few jitters few things getting us out of the state what better person i'm 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 trying to neatly segue to our guest because i'm very excited about our guest today our our guest is someone i first met on an episode of star talk where she's resident neuroscientist uh that our go-to person for whenever neil degrasse tyson and co want to talk about the brain God, I'm so bad at I'm so bad at the, the kind of slick intro shit. But uh, <laughs> look, she isn't because she has a brand new series on Nova entitled Your Brain, which is coming out in less than a week's time. It is Dr. Heather Berlin. Hey, Heather. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having Good. me. Thanks for coming on. So what was happening in my brain just then when I was failing to be in a flow state and smoothly <laughs> introducing you? Yeah, we call that just a mental fart, I think is the technical term. Uh, brain, but, fart, yeah. uh, brain fart, yeah. Head, brain fart, yeah. I don't know. That's the technical term, but um, no, you know, it's 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 a Saturday, right? You get <laughs> mental fatigue, that's all. Yeah, did, did, did you guys all have a good week? Did everyone, everyone had a decent week? Yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, I've been, um, I've, I've been... What? picketing again so i've been out on the line getting heat stroke for the last f- five days so maybe i can blame my you're still intro uh, on that. so chilies is still underpaying you're still upset at chilies bar and grill ah uh, furious at them furious all i want is an extra side dish mm-hmm. that's all that's all i want <laughs> well i've i've told them several times the awesome blossom will never be the blooming onion and it's sort of a scab <laughs> deal anyway that they're doing that um Brutal. So, um, so a fun thing to do on a Saturday, obviously, is flip on the TV. Maybe, maybe flip over to Nova. Maybe watch some. Maybe so, Heather. Yes. Quick on the unmute. Love it. Um, <laughs> I know the listeners can't see this, but she has like a trigger finger on when she's ready to. This is incredible. Um, it's like producing a Bowie record or something. Um, <laughs> this is great. Uh, how did this all come about? I mean, I want to get into your history and all of that, but how did this? Uh, how did this show come about? In this, uh, what's it all about? This sounds wonderful. Yeah, this particular show, um, you know, I had I'd gone I was at um, WGBH, the studios in Boston. I was giving a talk um, for this uh, kind of event called Smash, which is like science media awards. Um, And I was there giving a talk. And then um, the executive producer of Nova saw it and said, you know, can we have a meeting? And she was sort of like, you know, if you had any concept for a show what would it be and I was like well yeah I you know dream come true this would be my concept and it you know I want to do a show on the brain um highlighting the latest you know most cutting-edge research in neuroscience and how it relates broadly to I mean my main interest is in the neural basis of consciousness right how this physical piece of matter creates our subjective experience everything we you know think and feel um Every emotion, every thought. Did you so, get mad yeah. at Billie mm-hmm. Eilish when she asked, where do we go when we fall asleep? Were you like, I have answers? Yes. And were you like, I can't She only listen. would have called me. I don't know. Is I know. I album? can't listen to this number one hit. I, uh, <laughs> too busy fact checking. Yeah. I mean, that's actually, you know, one of the things we did was we, um, 
I mean, that really is an interesting question that I've always asked. Where do we go when we fall asleep? What about when we go under anesthesia, where it's really a controlled way that we can sort of shut consciousness off and turn it back yeah. on? So one of the segments we did is I went into the ER at Mass General alongside the an- anesthesiologist and kind of talked our way through how we use, you know, drugs in this case to you know, turn the brain to a state where we're no longer conscious and we can look at the EEG, which is like measuring, you know, brain activity and know when a person is out and then know when we've sort of turned consciousness back on again by taking this basic measure of, you know, uh, it's like looking at brain activity basically. Um, But, you know, where do we go? Um, We are just, we are a brain in, in many ways. And when you change the way the brain is communicating you can almost think about it like a conversation right now you can hear things distinctly they have meaning but when you kind of slow things down in the brain it just becomes a kind of mumble that that's still active but doesn't make much sense and that's when we're no longer conscious now you are a professor of psychiatry as well Mm-hmm. yep uh, can yep. you get us propofol <laughs> that is well listen we got you on really because we have a long <laughs> bill of materials for what we want and no i'm kidding um that that is uh fascinating and i'm sure also will help people with um a fear of anesthesia i've i mean i've had to do it a few mm-hmm. times and my first time i was terrified because you know what what happens if i'm just stuck in my head uh, but if the mm-hmm. brainwaves can't actually, that's not actually happening, you know, it's just yeah. time time travel. Right. I, I actually, I have the same thing. I mean, the reason I became a neuroscientist is because I had this fear of death as a kid. And I was like, well, where does my thought, where do my thoughts go? Where does my consciousness go? And, and how is it tied to my brain? And how can I keep it even if my brain no longer exists? Right. So mm-hmm. like, I mean, I was having these deep thoughts as a kid. I, I mean, I, you know, I think I just had a very traumatic childhood or something and I am, um, you know, thought about not only when we dream and when we go to sleep at night, we're letting go of our consciousness, but, you know, under anesthesia. So I was very afraid. I had to go under general anesthesia once. And I was I was really petrified and actually went did like sort of hypnotherapy just to yeah. get myself to get the nerve up to do it. Because I thought, what if I don't come back, you know? Right. Um, so I, I think the more I understand um, it helps more understand about how the brain works, but it still doesn't get over this idea that once the brain shuts down, you know, so do you, right? right? As an entity, because our brain creates our sense of self. It's just another kind of illusion the way, and part of what we explore in episode one, which is called perception deception, is kind of how our brain constructs a model of what's out there in the world, but it's not a one-to-one correlation. And there are all these little like sort of you know, holes in the system or kind of you can see, you know, in the matrix when suddenly you can like see into the matrix, but their visual illusions give us a cue or an understanding of how our brain helps us construct the world and how we can, you know, each of us perceives the world in a slightly different way. Yeah. Are there answers or research into the, I'm not trying to derail anything because this sounds fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm going to tune in. Um, for I suppose I'm not going to say the the two brains. I know we have one brain. I just don't know how to word it. Where, for for instance, right? Um, I have an anxiety disorder. That's my thing. So I'm used to my brain constantly lying to me um, and catastrophizing and all that. But I'm also self aware of that. So I'm also observing this happen. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. So that differentiator, I guess I'm the one observing what the hell's the other thing. I mean, that's still me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, you know, sometimes you call it kind of meta consciousness. So there's the basic consciousness, which is like just feeling subjective experience like um or seeing the color red or feeling pain or having a basic feeling feeling anxiety right right and then you have like the next level up which is like oh it's it's me who's like feeling the anxiety or you know seeing the color red and then there's a higher order thought where it's like oh like that red reminds me of that red that was you know on my birthday cake last week or whatever and then you're starting to connect it in this sort of matrix of understanding and having meaning but you know, they're just different, like higher orders of consciousness, but it's all within the same brain. And another way to divide it up is to think about you have your basic sort of subcortical, evolutionarily older parts of your, your brain that give you that immediate, let's say, fight or flight response, right? Right. Like, ah, that's anxiety. what people call like the that's what people call the lizard brain, right? For the same Mm-hmm. You know, or is that yeah. different? And that's the yeah, limbic, like the limbic system. That's the limbic system. system. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like immediate react. You know, we need that for survival. Like, you better run like right away. Or and it, well, all anxiety. I mean, anxiety is just fear of something, a potential future threat. You know, it's imagining something that could happen in the future that's not actually happening right now, and and having that whole kind of fear response to something that's actually not occurring in the moment. Can I tell and, you guys? I'm yeah. so sorry. Mm-hmm. Nope. No. I you were about to say something brilliant. And I interrupted. Well, I mean, everything I say is, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, no, and, and then, you know, you have that immediate response, but then we have these higher order parts of the brain, the more recently evolved parts, like the prefrontal cortex, um, you know, that give us the ability to have some insight into those feelings and decide whether I should respond or not. So for example, you're watching a scary movie and then something scary happens and you get this like, ah, I better run. But then your prefrontal cortex tells you, oh no, wait, I'm only in a movie theater. It's not real. You know, I don't have to go running, screaming out of the movie. But you know, the very first movie that people ever saw before there was filmed, the first movie was like a a train coming into the tracks. And when the train came, people like, ran and screamed because they thought it was like going to come at them through the screen right there was not this understanding Uh that oh wait that this is just not real so you can override your initial response and then decide to behave in a different way yeah i um i think about that a lot with the the first film train arriving at station like you know the seven Mm -hmm. second clip or whatever there was also one where a guy fires a gun at the camera. It was a it was a blank, but like people passed out in the theater and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, evolutionarily, we're not ready for that. So when something brand new happens, it's like whoa, whoa. and uh, I I'm constantly wondering where we're at with like social media and things like that with our brains' evolution and are we ready in any way for this? Do we have any idea what this is doing? Um, <laughs> but. <Wait. laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say we call you know it's this mismatch theory of um, in in psychology where that basically every disorder we have can be explained from this evolutionary psychology perspective, which is the premise is that you know our, we're these sort of caveman brains in a you know high tech world, and our biology evolves at a slower rate than technology does. So you know where it would be natural for us to have an instinct to be let's say afraid of heights, so that you wouldn't like 
walk off a cliff, right? right? But now, if you're standing in a, you know, the 30th floor of a building and you're looking out the window and you're still having that fear response, right? It's it's an evolutionarily adaptive response that's no longer adaptive in the current environment. But, you know, you can scale that up to all these technologies we have. Our brain isn't developed to be able to handle these things, right? We, we're that makes still sense. Living, yeah, in a totally, you know, because the evolution is slow in terms of biological evolution in that way. Like so, it makes so, sense yeah. to be scared of snakes, but that's because the brain hasn't evolved faster than Alice Cooper music videos. Exactly. Correct. <laughs> and so, also, like, you know, people usually don't have a fear of, like, sockets, right? Where, But they, they are, do usually have a fear of, like, snakes or heights, Those because electrical sockets didn't exist back then, so that we usually don't see those kinds of fears, right? What Should we make electrical sockets look like sort of strange snake <laughs> holes or something? <laughs> I... Um, no, a, a good example of that that I think about all the time is this, I guess, ties into show business stuff is um, people always think movie stars look smaller in person. They're like, I'm amazed at how, you know, oh, I saw so and so the other day. They're so short. And it's like, well, you're I, I mean, I think your brain's used to only seeing something real size for a hundred thousand years. And then <laughs> and then you see them on the big screen and it's like jarring, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like we know what's happening. That? But really? I don't know. I it, I mean, it's it's almost every time. Like, oh, I, I saw I saw Nicolas Cage at Whole Foods. He's so short. Not really. He's like six two. He's just not a movie screen. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or it could just be that every time you're sh- every camera angle that you would choose on a person is going to be for them. I shouldn't say every time, but for the most part, it's going to be the camera is at the person's level. So if you are a right. taller than average person, sure. I guess it's the same principle. Law of averages, like that person, you know, because you're used to seeing somebody from your perspective as a taller person, where the camera is always going to be at the eye level of the person they're shooting. That's that's what's my theory. Yeah, and I'm also on stilts at Whole Foods. Sure. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. No. What What I was going to say earlier is um, when when my panic attacks started. This is so Mm -hmm. stupid, but they started when I was like 11, and then I tried to do my own research and figure out what's happening, and I sort of learned about the primordial brain, and like this is what your body thinks this is happening, even though you're just sitting on a couch, you know, your body's going into fight or flight. So I literally, as an 11 year old, I thought what I'm going to do to stop panic attacks, right, mm-hmm. is I drew a picture of a dead saber tooth tiger. And I was like, if I look at that, my brain will think I've killed this tiger and it'll calm down. And it uh, does not work at all. That did not work. But <laughs> if anyone out there, I was like, I'm really, I'm really onto something. If my primordial brain is like, no, if it's like, oh, the threat is over. You know, like if I can convince my lizard brain, like you've successfully done this, you can chill out. You know what I mean? If you just carry around a picture of like a dead woolly mammoth, your panic attack will stop. But it, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't work. That's a great idea. I love that. It was a horrible idea. Very creative. (laughs) (laughs) No, a lot of times, you know, with panic, you have to almost do the opposite of what you think. You have to invite it in. It's almost like, you know, an analogy is like, you know, those like, these like Chinese thumb traps, I think they're called, or right, right. where like you stick yeah. your two thumbs in and then the more you pull to try to get them out, the tighter it latches onto them. But you really got to kind of like push in in a way to get them out, to loosen yep. it. So you do yeah, the I think opposite. I think I left mine in London, but I've got them. 
Yeah, you do the opposite of what your intuition is. And with a panic attack, you kind of have to lean into it. You have to kind of dare it to come on stronger as you feel it coming on. Like, come on, let's see. Let's let's make this the worst panic attack I could possibly right. have. Right. And then because the more what happens is it's this like kindling effect where you start feeling it coming on and then you start panicking about having a panic attack. And then the more you panic, the worse it gets. And, you know, then it builds from there. So you almost have to say like, yeah, great. Let's have the best, biggest panic attack I can possibly have. Let's just bring it on. And then it kind of starts to die down. Yeah. That's one mm. strategy. I didn't yeah. know that. I'll yeah. That's the, what, that's like what the ACT model or the ACT or CBT or no, that particular ma- model, I think it's st- like called dare or something like it stands for something, which I should know, but usually in CBT, it's kind of like acceptance right it's you know trying to just accept it rather than fight it and then you know and then there's more deeper issues like what are you panicking about and what are the triggers and how to work through that um when you're not panicking right can we score some propofol etc right right. (laughs) um yeah (laughs) propanolol which actually would do better for panic attacks that's like a beta blocker that just calms down the oh i I got him i got it oh oh Oh, my god you can no my i could i I could rattle my cabinet right now. You would hear, uh, I got them. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're good. I take them, I take them sometimes. Uh, guy, comedian people, fellow comics listening, uh, they're mm-hmm. good for like before you go on stage, about an hour before. Papa. Which mm-hmm. beta blockers? Yeah, it just stops like any are, sweaty palm. Are those it's also like, the ones that like violinists take because of like to keep hands from trembling? Is that, is that a different class? Maybe. Yeah. No, that, that, yeah, and also it's banned in some sports. Right, right, right. Like, like fine motor skill like, sports? Yeah, like darts and uh, billiards and snooker and that kind of thing. Really? Interesting. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. It calms you I'm down. saying that with a lot of confidence, but I'm pretty sure that's the case because <laughs> uh, hmm. it, it does. It, it like stops any kind of trembling, and I'm sure like mm-hmm. shooting sports as well. Yeah, it, it calms down. A lot of people take it for social anxiety, for, you know, giving a speech if they have, you know fear of public speaking those kinds of things they take it right before and it kind of knocks out that anxiety um so yeah i just looked it up and it it is um it's it's just uh as of 2023 beta blockers are now going to be banned in mini golf according to the world (laughs) mini golf federation you're kidding right is that a joke that that was the very that was the very first link. <laughs> uh, it's already prohibited in competition for all sub-disciplines of free diving, spear fishing, and target shooting. Um, wow. Oh, and and archery, racing, racing, billiards, darts. Yeah. So. Well, no. I mean, I remember being in like high school and going on a date, and you're out there on the mini golf course, and I'm like, this guy in front of us is taking performance enhancers. Like, I know. <laughs> you know what it's I'm saying? An unrealistic I, standard. Yeah. No, the way that they just nailed through that windmill, like this guy's juicing. <laughs> You know what I mean? So I'm glad they're finally doing something about this out on the out on the mini golf course. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so sorry. I was going to say we we glossed over uh, a pretty big field that is probably my biggest. In, uh, the same reason you got interested in this field. We we sort of just touched on consciousness and then moved on. But like that's mm-hmm. the most fascinating thing about our brains mm-hmm. to me. I'm sorry, and I'm wondering yeah. if. What is the state of the art about understanding why and how consciousness arises? Do you think we'll ever figure it out? And then once we've talked about that, I want to talk about AI and uh, what your yeah. opinions are there. I, I um, kind of figured that this episode would at some point have Andy bringing AI up. I mean, it's not. just logical. Like, if we're trying to figure out what it is and then copy mm-hmm. it, 
like when would we know if we did it? What is it possible that it would emerge? Yeah, there's a lot of deep questions that spend a lifetime studying, so it's gonna be hard to do. <laughs> no, we need podcast. you to. However, we invited you on to do this yes. <laughs> and to solve these. Let's go! Come on. Since it's probably since <laughs> Descartes, have been thinking about this. Yeah. Um, look, there there are a number of like there, there's a lot of people doing research in this field. This field of um, what's called studying the neural correlates of consciousness or the NCC started like basically in the mid to late 90s, Francis Crick, after he, you know, the co-discoverer of DNA, decided his next thing, big thing he was going to tackle was the neural basis of consciousness. And then he, along with a young neuroscientist at the time, Christoph Koch, sort of wrote this seminal paper that allowed like scientists to study consciousness in a way that was scientifically legitimate rather than leaving it to the realm of philosophy. So it's a relatively new field. Um, but there's a lot of research and w there's some big contenders in terms of a theory of consciousness. One of them is called the integrated information theory of consciousness. Another one's called the global neuronal workspace theory. So there are various theories about, about how it works. We still don't know, right? And we're just trying to understand it experimentally. There's, you know, what David Chalmers, the philosopher, has coined the hard problem versus the easy problem. The easy problem, which is actually not so easy, but theoretically solvable, is that if we could, if we could map out every thought, every feeling to a very specific set of neurons firing in the brain. We can correlate everything we think or feel. and But even that we haven't been able to do, but theoretically we can do that. But let's say we've done it. Then the question becomes still, why is it that this specific set of neurons firing and these neurochemicals slushing around in this piece of matter should produce subjective states, like a feeling? And that's called the hard problem. And we might not ever be able to understand that or solve that. And that's what gets into AI, because the question is, is conscious substrate dependent, meaning can it only be instantiated in like a physical biological system, a brain that evolved over time? Or if we took that same exact, you know, let's we call integrated information, the same information processing information, but put it in silicon, and and would that then be conscious, or does it matter like what the what it's instantiated in? Is it or is it just ones and zeros? Right. It's just, right. As soon as information gets complex enough, information processing suddenly it just happens. Like what? Yeah. It... Yeah. So that's what the integrated info. They have this this um, concept called pi, which is a mathematical calculation, which is the amount of differentiated integrated information a system has, and the idea is that that number is consciousness. As soon as you get a certain level of complexity of, of information processing and it's integrated information, that it, this any system becomes conscious. And that would say that basically a neuromorphic computer, you'd have to like build it. It wouldn't just be software because if you like simulate software in a computer, um, like weather in a computer program, it's not going to actually be wet, right? So the idea is you have to actually build a physical like neuromorphic computer and that somehow it might be conscious. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but, but you know, I think another question around this, and we tackle this in episode. So episode two is about who's in control. How much control do we really have? And mm -hmm. we look at things like free will and, and, you know, how much control do we have over our decisions and our thoughts and the stories we tell ourselves about why we do things which aren't necessarily the real issue. So we look at things is like- Is this show um, going to freak people out? Like I mean, it probably will. It's like basically <laughs> saying your sense of self is an illusion. Right, your right. Your sense of control is an illusion. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but the idea is like you tap into your unconscious and like go with it, right? And so we talk about flow states and creativity and just sort of like 
allowing knowing that most of what you're doing is based on unconscious processes and like being in line with those things and in tune with them and you can let go a little bit you don't have to have conscious control all the time Mm because a lot of the time you know there's this analogy that um a psychologist jonathan Haidt height uses where it's like it's like a, a rider and an elephant. So you have this big elephant who's riding. His little the rider is riding the elephant is like consciousness. So occasionally you can kind of like push it toward one way or the other. But in general, like that elephant's going where it wants to go, <laughs> you know. So you can think of it like that. You have a little control, but really, you know, elephants doing most of the work. Is is there actually a definition of flow state, or like is it how how sort of acutely is it defined? Because I have a sort of vague idea of what it means, and and vague you know, idea of having experienced it but i don't know if you could say surely or can you i you know i would say that it's um a state that well i would i'm very interested in what does the brain look like when you get into these states but i would say it from a phenomenological perspective it's kind of when you feel like you lose your sense of self and time and place it's usually associated with very positive emotions people often say they feel like because you lose your sense of self or your sort of boundary between self and other, you feel like connected with everything. It feels like stuff is flowing through you. Like a lot of artists would say like, oh, you know, it wasn't me. It was just like flowing through me, like the words or the the art or whatever. Um, And it's almost like a dissociative state. And we see that when you're in these states, you get decreased activation of the part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which normally is to do with our sense of agency and self. And it also is the inner critic So that kind of turns down. And the minute it's turned back on again, like if you're in the middle of a performance or something, you become too self-aware, you kind of mess up your flow state. You infuse it with too much with like self-awareness and consciousness. And um, that's also the part of the brain has to do with filtering our behavior to make sure it conforms to social norms. So you start like, you know, filtering what you're going to say. So you lose that like improvisation and creativity. Um, so, so do alcohol, does alcohol and drugs also sort of inhibit that self-conscious? Is that what the part of the brain that is inhibited when you're a bit drunk? Yeah, exactly. So it can lower that inhibition that, that you know, but the, the, the problem with getting there with drugs or alcohol is that um, if you do too much drugs or alcohol, it can, it can mess up other aspects of you, like, you know, your reaction time or your, you know, other things it can have a deleterious effect on. So the best way is to get to those flow states in natural ways so you can really be your best create it doesn't even have to be creative you know some people do it through rock climbing or playing a sport or you kind of get into the zone where you know time doesn't exist time space self doesn't exist you're just purely in the moment and it's very pleasurable or you're playing a musical instrument you know those kinds of um states it's it sounds like that's only observable to to the uh to the person this happens to it's only observable in hindsight because you know the awareness at the time would end the experience, so mm-hmm. I well, like. I mean, there have been times when I've looked back and been like, "Oh yeah, I I can, I can point to all of those symptoms happening." You know, mm-hmm. where you're like, "Oh man, uh, whatever." I was working on some stupid drawing, and and like four hours went by, and I don't remember feeling anything but content. Um, mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. You know, how do yeah. I get back to that or whatever? But. Um, it is just existing, sort of, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then it's and over. There's, I don't... there's sometimes, you know, you can, it's it's not like you're completely lost in the state, like you can go in and out. Um, so we call this, um, you know, you have this default mode network, which is kind of when you have an internal focus of attention, and then you have something that's called external uh, executive 
control network, which is like external focus of attention. And when you're in these flow states, you get that kind of more activity in that default mode. So you're getting sort of internal generation of new ideas. It's coming from within, you know, it feels like it's flowing through you. It's not filtered by your like sort of logic or reason necessarily or your sense of self. But then like, let's say you're on stage performing, you're doing improv, you also can switch in and out between these states and you can like check in on the audience. Okay, how how am I performing? How am I doing? What's my feedback? And then you go back into your internal state and you know, it's it's almost like performance feedback revision. Like you're, you're doing stuff, you're checking in a little bit with the outside world because you're not completely detached. Unless you're home alone doing something, you know, you're just like playing piano or whatever. Um, so there is even some Even then there. I ask for a location and profession from from the piano um <laughs> yeah you know i mean like also you're not just you're you're there you know it's like you're completely gone like right. maybe on like like it's if you're on drugs or something you know when you're tripping out you, you might be more uh right. yeah it might be a more intense state than the natural flow state which episode so- do you disprove god <laughs> that's three or you say is that like a finale situation or like <laughs> there's actually i have an online i did a debate with deepak chopra which i oh, yeah? won i might say yeah Ooh, and can we watch how do we watch you can watch it's it's a bait series called iq squared or iq2 and i didn't um, i've seen some of those other debates i didn't know you did one that's well uh, we're gonna link that in the show deepak. notes everyone Oh, yeah. And uh, it was basically the way you went is the audience votes before. The question in this case was, um, the more we evolve, the less we need God. And I was, you know, for he was against it was me and Michael Shermer, who is a very well-known skeptic. And then Deepak and someone else whose name I can't remember, but a friend of Deepak's. So the but what happened is the conversation kind of moved from the more we evolve, the less we need God into because Deepak define God as like universal consciousness Mm. and basically said that uh, consciousness exists out there and it creates matter. So we are a creation of consciousness. And then once we die, we just enter back into that like universal consciousness. And, And I, as a neuroscientist, say, no, matter creates consciousness versus consciousness creates matter. And so it got into a kind of discussion like that. But the debate, the way you win is the audience votes first in the beginning about what, you know, what side they're on. Then they hear the, the arguments and at the end they vote again. And you win by getting more people, you know, moved over to your Fight. side of the argument. So mm. I, I beat Deepak. I mean, nice. I like, yeah. That, so if you're interested in that question, how to, I'm not, I'm not here to disprove God. I actually want there to, be, I would love there to be like life after death and come my consciousness to go on. I really want my consciousness to go on. This is why I'm studying no, me, me too. Me too. Yeah. But like, come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's my answer. That's my whole, if I was there with Deepak, I'd be like, come on. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Th- thanks to this podcast, there is a significant amount of our recorded thoughts that at some point could be churned into some kind of horrendous. Oh, just the most unbearable uh, simulation. <laughs> you would not be experiencing it anyway, but would look <laughs> But like, it's like yeah. you're not experiencing it. I don't even care about leaving behind. I mean, yeah, sure, leave behind a mark, leave the world a better place. Whatever, right, right, right. Like, I just want to be here to like be experiencing it. You want in, right. yeah. And I can't. That's yeah. why, like, you know, I understand. I mean, I listen. I, I do therapy as well. I'm 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 a neuroscientist and a clinical psychologist, and I work with people. And you know, I've worked with people who are suicidal. 
I could never be suicide. I mean, knock on wood, but I, because I want to hold on to life no matter what, whether it sucks, whether it's good, whatever. I just it's want better to be than the alternative. It's better than the alternative. Right. And I say, even if I'm in, and you know, obviously people have, they can make their own decisions and it's everybody's choice and there's no right or wrong. But I say, even if I'm in like a coma or whatever, if there's the potential for eventually maybe bringing me back, like keep me alive, right? I want to, because- some potential to be alive again is better than zero potential to be alive again. I'm so, I'm with you. Yeah. I think that that also that's that's implying a logic to suicidality though, which oh, perhaps yeah. people don't experience in those states. It's very um, different. Yeah. No, yeah, cuz I but I, no, no. I mean, I'm I'm with you 100% of where like okay, let's let's break this down. I would always rather it, it on paper, even if I were being tortured in a weird mm-hmm. Baltic prison, I would rather be alive. Um, than really? Pain. I can't. Yeah, pain. because there's no relief in death. There's no relief in that. Of course there's there nothing. is. Like, no, there no, there's not. Nothing. You're you're assuming. You're assuming you're there for the relief. There's well, just. I mean, it would be. It wouldn't be suffering if 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 we're talking about if it's just you know this thing that needs material to exist. When that material goes away, it stops existing. Then there wouldn't be any suffering. It wouldn't be like positive or negative it'd be nothing it'd be nothing. it's like it'd be like being asleep your, your consciousness is turned off so right? what's the Neither point of that what's the point of entering that well, state saying, I, I can you... imagine uh, being tortured badly enough that i'm like okay i'm out <laughs> you're gonna check out this yeah. is the thing though my i you know i'm always again since i was a kid i for some reason were thinking in these grand ways but i was like okay you know we get this brief moment in the sun sandwiched between these two eternities of nothingness right. forever before us and forever after us and i'm just imagining it. you at the lunch table in first grade <laughs> and everyone's like okay like we're yeah. <laughs> no, I know. that happened i mean they put they said of course you know they sent me to the school psychologist because i was talking about like where do my thoughts go when i die and can i keep them when i die and like what can i be to figure that out how does the brain work you know they were like what do we do with it? like she's gonna have to go to like a special school you know but luckily they they brought me in school psychologist they did testing on me whatever and they said actually no like we're gonna put you in a more we're gonna nurture you and like in a more like accelerated program rather than because i think it was it could have gone either way like they could have been like you know uh you need a special school to deal with your issues or whatever but luckily they nurtured me they let me go to this like advanced program and i was actually taking classes in psychology when i was in elementary school and was really fortunate to be able to have that experience and which it also inspired me to go into not only neuroscience, but psychology. Um, I'll never forget this great guy who taught the class and he was Mr. Stewart. I don't know where he is in this world, but I'm giving him a shout out. He was awesome and really turned me on to the you know intricacies of the human mind and how that all works. It's not just the brain, it's the mind and how do these two things come together. And that's what I've been fascinated by. And actually, as it was coming up, they're really only was the beginning of this field of cognitive neuroscience, where you kind of look at both and both the mind and the brain and how they're interrelated. And I do have to say, bring it back to the show, not to go off on a tangent, but I was one of the most exciting things that I got to do personally was um, we did a segment um, at, at UC Santa Barbara with someone named Michael Gazanica, who was one of the founders of the field of cognitive neuroscience. He also did the original split brain studies where you oh, kind cool. of split that yeah for people with epilepsy you'd split the you'd cut the corpus callosum which is basically what connects the two hemispheres and all this interesting stuff was discovered from that so we um we we went over we saw video from the original split brain cases and we talked about them and but it was just so cool to be with you know 
this like founding father of the field that I'm in and a kind of surreal experience. Um, that was one of the highlights for me, but that's in, that's in the show. I think it's in, uh, it's very cool. I believe it's in episode two. Yeah. Uh, I'm, are there I'm, things that you, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I, are, are there things that you discovered during the course of making the show that you didn't previously know? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I had, I had a pretty heavy hand in the, um, you know, I was the, basically the scientific consultant of the show. So I was sort of right. a lot of the times like, okay, you should interview this person. We should cover this research. We should, you know, so I kind of was leading the way in that way. But I did, I did discover some interesting things. We did, um, we, we, we went and covered this research that was being done up at Dartmouth where they were looking at decision making and these kind of economic um, paradigms where basically it, it's hard to explain the whole paradigm, but basically like you can either like give be a little bit more generous with giving your partner money and then see if they reciprocate or not. But there was this interesting thing where it's like the more you give, sometimes it, it you feel good about it. But sometimes, you know, there's this, this, if you give too much to someone, they feel bad about it, which is interesting when you're looking at their brain, huh. because, because actually they then feel like they owe you something, right? And so like people think of them being really generous, I'm going to give them this huge gift and it's going to be great. They might feel guilty or bad yeah. that they I, I th- yeah, don't gift leverage. Gift leverage is my least favorite feeling. Oh, that's I- a good term for it. Yeah. <laughs> gift leverage. I'm with you 100%. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, our brain is constantly making these calculations of how much do I give? How much should I take between greed and generosity? But you can see these very different areas lighting up in the brain when you're making these kinds of decisions, which it's, which is interesting. It's weird. When I was uh, during the during the pandemic, uh, which I mean, you know, which we're still in. But when the pandemic mm-hmm. was like, there's there's no you know, this is insane. Um, I took a research job for on the Moderna vaccine. Um, mm-hmm. And that was here in in Nashville. Uh, so the the building that I was in at this big university hospital center thing, um, it was all research. It was a hundred percent research buildings. So like, you know, you'd see people walking with like sort of a crates of lab rats, and then like p- people are working on this and working on this, and every, and it was a really weird environment because so many people are doing so many different studies that everything that happened made me wonder if I was in a study. Like I found a guy's wallet and I was like looking around like, like you know, for like, du- okay, like dudes with clipboards. Like sometimes stuff would happen. Like I'd go get a coffee and they and the exact one I wanted would they're like, we don't have that. But I could see sort of that they had it. And I'd be like looking around like who's yeah. filming this. It was so you sometimes weird. Sometimes go to your desk and there'd be a single marshmallow sitting there. Right, right. 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 <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I do that to my kids all the time. I mean, they're always under under the gun. I'm like taking notes, you know. Who's the, which one's the control that has like a stable childhood? <laughs> the control kid. There is no control. There is no control. No, wow. I mean it's 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 yeah. I, I you know, you I guess I'm not doing it on purpose, but I do observe you know i'll say to my kid like here i'm just gonna give you this one cookie now or you can wait and i'll give you two if i come back in the room and the cookie's still there you know like i'll do these little things once in a while just to see they have no control didn't they they establish a while ago that that um yeah that the sort of marshmallow test is actually bunk is a like Mm -hmm. i i seem to remember reading correct correct me if i'm wrong on this one but it was um the original study never bothered to control for sort of income and upbringing properly so 
Yes. Yeah, right. So exactly. Like if you have scarcity of resources, you you don't know whether, you know, it makes it's 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 adaptive to take the marshmallow now because you don't know right. that another one's necessarily going to come. And just, exactly. Because just, just to update the listeners who aren't familiar, this is a this is sort of a classic psychological experiment. Right? I remember hearing about it. Just the original version mm-hmm. is you give these kids you put these kids in a room and tell them like, hey, here's one marshmallow, but if you, or one cookie or whatever, but if you don't eat it for 20 minutes, then you'll get two. Um, and well, then it's not even 20 minutes. Up. It's like five, ten, like it's very oh, short. It really it's not that? even that, it's not 20 minutes, but yeah, maybe like five or 10 minutes. Yeah. But, and, th- and then they supposedly follow up with these kids years later and find out that the ones who were able to delay gratification did better in life but but, but also then, th- that the marshmallows had gone really bad yeah right yeah. in all those but years. then it it, <laughs> it later yeah. but then it, it later turns out that uh yeah kids that grow up with scarcer resources are less inclined to trust that there'll be food later and those kids also tend to not be as successful later in life because they grow up with less with fewer advantages mm-hmm. right there had to be one kid who like didn't know what the study was going to be, you know, because they're not told beforehand, and he's just like pounding marshmallows in the waiting room. <laughs> just, he's like all good on marshmallows, like, and they didn't account for that kid, marshmallow snack kid. Yeah, but I mean, there is something to the idea of you know what we call executive function that when you have better, let's say, prefrontal cortex control, you're better able to, you know control your impulses and therefore that means you know you're going to stay in and study instead of going to the party and that might lead to better grades and then eventually a better job and like there are advantages to be able to have to to have more impulse control and to delay gratification over time for some bigger reward later um but at the same time and so there's all these strategies to how to increase um your executive control i'm actually writing a book now on all about impulse control in the brain which mm. will maybe i'll come back huh. on again to pitch next year for that but but did you just wake other- up and you had to start writing it i just had to <laughs> i had no control over the matter i wish that's how i woke up and wrote this book but anyway um no this takes a lot of control uh, but I think the other aspect, though, is that when it's also healthy to let go um, in a controlled way and get you know into these flow states. Like if you were completely let go all the time, you'd be, have these impulse control disorders. But to be able to let go in these controlled ways, whether it's like meditation or flow states, um, it, it actually can be very therapeutic. You just don't want to be like let go all the time where you can't gain that control. So it's really this this ability to be able to control and to let go um, and have that be under your control. What is an impulse control disorder? You mean that's like a symptom of it? Like you mean like like bipolar? No, so or? so you can an impulse so there's different so there's impulsivity which can be a symptom within different disorders, right? Sure. So you have impulsivity within let's say ADHD um, or like in a manic episode or whatever a bunch of disorders have that where you just can't control your impulse a borderline personality disorder. But then there are these very specific impulse control disorders Ooh. um which, i love a new which, disorder i don't i mean i yes. don't love it but like i you know well they're also been called <laughs> um they've been called impulsive compulsive disorders because there's an impulsive and a compulsive element and what i mean by that and this is getting into the weeds a little bit but but impulsivity is more like you can't delay your gratification like you need it now despite the consequences it's about sort of pleasure seeking in a way whereas a compulsive behavior is more like the avoidance you're doing something to avoid a negative like you're having anxiety let's say about getting a 
disease. So you compulsively wash your hands so you feel better. So you're getting like this reinforcement by taking away a negative feeling. So impulsivity is gaining a positive feeling despite the consequences. A compulsive behavior is doing something to take away. Like you're craving, right. you're feeling bad. So, you know, you're, you do a drug to get the bad feeling to go away. Anyway, so yeah. there are these combinations of, of, of both. Um, but, you know, impulsive, um, you have these behavioral, they're also called behavioral addictions, like shopping, you know, like kleptomania, right? Um, uh, okay. Yeah. You know, those like internet overuse, yeah. like um, gambling is, is, you know, gambling, pathological gambling is an impulse control disorder. There's like sexual, you know, compulsion. So, so these behaviors that are detrimental, that are kind of pleasure seeking that you can't, you stop yourself from doing them. Um, and there's variation, like, like there's, um, skin picking and hair pulling and, and those kinds of disorders where again, you're having an impulse to do something and you can't quite control it despite the negative consequences. I was watching a video recently about the effects of alcohol I, I took, I forgot I've talked about this in the podcast. I took five I, I weeks off. I thought you were segueing into your weird pimple popping videos. No, <laughs> no but this, this <laughs> no, was an interesting, so, so I took five weeks off drinking to try to get in shape for this swim meet. And another guy who I was, who was training, he was like, by the way, if you watch this video, it'll probably make it easier. Cause it was like a guy talking about all of the physiological effects of alcohol. And you know, there's so many things like, obviously I know it's poison. I know, you know, it's one of those things we know it's bad. We do it. And it's just a weird thing that society tolerates in certain quantities. Um, but there were things in the video I didn't know about, including the effect on impulse control. And according to this researcher, whoever it was, at least, the, the effects on impulse control continue even when you're not, when there's no current alcohol in your system. Like as a as a chronic, which doesn't mean like a ton, but just even as a regular drinker of just a drink or two a day, that long term, that affects impulse control in your life, even when it's totally out of your system for like... Anyway, is that a thing that you have studied also? Is that is that is that the case? And if if not, are there other substances that affect that? Or well, I think with alcohol, is I mean, there's some compounds there. Like maybe people who are more likely to drink a lot in general have less impulse control, right? So you don't know what came first, right? Was it somebody who was like had all this amount of impulse control, then they started drinking, and now they have less impulse control mm -hmm. um but there is there are like things like with chronic alcoholism you can get you get um basically deterioration of the prefrontal cortex and there's something called korsakov's amnesia where you start actually like you know forgetting things because the short-term memory part is located in the prefrontal cortex part of your brain the long-term memory is in the hippocampus but the short term is in the prefrontal cortex so you start getting really bad memory issues and, and then impulse control issues because you're actually damaging your prefrontal cortex which is like the brake system of the brain mm -hmm. so um but I've never heard of like you drink and then it's just out of your system and then you're still more impulsive, you know. Or, yeah. I don't know how long that it was, it, but it wasn't saying like obviously when you're drunk you have lowered inhibitions, but it wasn't just saying that. It was saying like it, it, in this chronic state, it can affect that. And it sounds like more of an excuse, like somebody like lights their ex's car on fire. And they're like, <laughs> I, I drank last month though, you know yeah. this damn booze. I tell you, <laughs> it's really affecting my brain. Yeah, I mean the thing is like so many things affect your brain that we don't even know. Like whether you ate breakfast this morning, right? right or like right. did you have a good night's sleep? Or like. You know, is are your hormones in a different state right now? Like, there's so many things that you don't even know that are going on behind the scenes 
that are affecting your like and there are all these studies by um like Baumeister and others who are looking at willpower, this concept of willpower and this idea that it's a limited resource. So like, for example, they did these experiments where it would be like, if you had to withhold doing like one, th like if you had to like say not have that cookie right now and you can withhold doing that and then they give you another task, which is like an impulse control task, you've already kind of used up some of your impulse. Like it's harder to control your impulse in the next task. Like you can kind of use it up like a resource, like it's like a muscle fatigue in a way. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and then there are also these studies, really interesting study with the, um, they looked at judges who were putting people out on uh, deciding whether someone should go on parole or not. And they looked at the, the default is to say, no, they can't go on parole, right? You have to actually override that to like think, you know, okay, I'm going to let them go on parole. So when it was in the morning, it was like, I forget what the rate was, like maybe 60% they would say can go out on parole. And then that rate would get gradually go down to zero just before lunch. And then right after lunch, it would shoot back up again. So the decisions these judges were making were, were being affected by when they were hungry or like sugar deprived and stuff that it's harder to then override your basic impulses. You know, when people say you're hangry or whatever, you get more irritable when you haven't eaten or slept. And then it's you're more likely to go down to your sort of baseline response. It's harder. It takes cognitive energy to override that with your prefrontal cortex and make a different decision. I, I, I mean, that, of course that checks out to me. I also just, I hate that people can be in such power that when they're hangry, it can affect someone else's life. Like, I'm like, yeah. I want to look up like what time of the day Ukraine was invaded. It's like, <laughs> dude, did, did you need a sandwich? Like you could have had a sandwich. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, well, I would say like, you know, when you want to make doctor's appointments, whatever, like go in the morning, you know, don't go like right around lunch. Like, or go just after lunchtime, but not at the end of the day and not just before. Like, if you're getting a procedure done or something. Well, I, like, I mean, that, yeah. that does make sense for a procedure. My worry, because I'm very much not a morning person, is going to the doctor too early in the morning and them just misdiagnosing me because mm -hmm. like, I'm, I am very... <laughs> Yeah, like, oh, he's got a serious case of the sleepies. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> well, and also it's like, it's one of the most sterile fields you can get if you're the first one in. Like, if you're the first oh. one in an OR or something, you know. Oh, interesting. Oh, I, I didn't even true. thought about that. Yeah, like, I'm always first. Any, any, yeah, any procedure, it's like, when do you open? I'll be there 15 minutes before that. Huh. So you didn't like, tell me you had OCD as well as the <laughs> panic. That's uh, No, no. <laughs> no I, I'm just <laughs> Well, that's all to say. No, I'm not a big, I'm not a big uh, germ guy. I'm talking about for like surgeries and stuff. If I'm getting a physical... Right, right. Then right, right. whatever. But if I um if I'm booking a colonoscopy, I'd prefer to go for it doesn't mean I'm not gonna go if they're like we right. only... you, want, you want them to use like a fresh tube. You don't want it, you don't want it to be <laughs> I don't want yeah, you know that they, they, they don't, don't, the they don't change out the, the camera. Day. You know they don't change out the camera. <laughs> they, wait, a colonoscopy isn't even a sterile procedure, is it? Yeah, you're yeah. you're always supposed to be in a sterile field, yeah. But I mean, nothing, yeah, no barriers it, are being broken. Like, correct, <laughs> but it's still in an or OR you want to call that it. has been. It's been. They're it's going in internally this. into your body. You don't want to get no. You don't want to get any foreign. Yeah. Okay. Know, but it's, it's, yeah. Right. It's notoriously a. They're in a mask. They're wearing effect. a mask. They're not just like well, no, no but, gloves. We, it, but okay. Here's the analogy. Well, I I dated a labor and delivery nurse, and she always thought it was funny that like people wear masks when they're giving birth, and she's like, "Is this a sterile procedure?" This is like, uh, you know, it's, 
Yeah, theoretically. I just think it's very interesting on a meta level how we went from like this esoteric, like what is the neural basis of consciousness down to the like minutia of a colonoscopy <laughs> all within the same hour. The brain is a machine. Welcome to the fun. show. Welcome to the show. Um, well, oh. I do want to talk a little bit more about uh, flow state because I know you've done work basic. You, you... Yeah, yeah. No, it's very... So we did a show... Um, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and then brought it to Off-Broadway looking at um, the neural basis of creativity and improvisation. And so um, in order to demonstrate that, I, you know, I've run a bunch of tests on him, um, you know, looked at him in the scanner, what's happening in his brain. And it's based on other studies that was done by um, Charles Lim and Lou, but looking at improv versus memorized. So what's the difference in the brain when you're doing an improvised rap, let's say, or a freestyle rap versus a memorized one? And you can see when they're Im doing improvised or jazz musicians, like improvised versus memorized. And in the improvised state, you get into this flow state where you get the decreased dorsolateral prefrontal cortex activation, increased medial prefrontal cortex activation, where it's like this internal generation of ideas that's unfiltered. So the filter system is turned down. So you get these sort of novel associations between ideas. And um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, a state that performers really like to be in when they're doing whether improv comedy or, you know, theater um, but it's not totally unconstrained, right? Because it's not like you're saying random words or, you know, playing random notes. They're still within a framework, right? There's a structure that you're within, but within that structure, you're allowed to sort of play more. And that's why usually only experts are really good at doing improv because you've internalized that external structure in a way that you know it so well that you can now like be divert from the system. Um, okay. and have it. That yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, we did this um, the show where I kind of demonstrated with him, you know, in real time, what's happening in his brain when he's freestyling. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun. Mm. That's awesome. By the way, speaking of flow states and getting it peak performance, um, we have to talk about the ten percent myth uh, because I'm sure there are things like that that people are still spouting off, and I'm curious, mm -hmm. <laughs> what is the state of the art of debunking? myths like oh you know you only use 10 percent of your brain but if you actually could use all of it or whatever like yeah it's like the science version of a, a cop has to tell you they're a cop right yeah <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah are, are there are there things like that that uh yeah what is what is the state of the art of debunking um brain misconceptions urban legends myths? yeah what are, what are your most pet peeve brain misconceptions maybe yeah yeah, because there is no state. Unfortunately, there is no that this is it now. This is the state of the art. I'm going to tell you what the things are that you should not believe. Um, you just have to get the word out. So, yes, it's a myth that we only use 10 percent of our brain. We really use all of it. If you think about the amount of resources that it utilizes in our body, how much energy it costs, our you know, evolution would not evolve something that's going to be using only 10 percent yet taking up most of our resources. But we know that it's most of what's happening is happening unconsciously behind the scenes. So maybe we're only conscious of 10 percent that's happening in our brain. But we're using our brain, all of it, all the time. None of it is redundant. Um, another misconception is this whole left brain, right brain um, so yes, while there is what we call lateralization, meaning there are certain functions that tend to be more specialized in one hemisphere or more like sort of 
located more in one hemisphere than another. Um, this idea that like creativity is like the right side of your brain and logic and reason are the left side of your brain is really not true. When we look at creativity, it's like a different pattern of activation across your brain, both hemispheres. It's not one side or the other. Um, so don't say, oh, I'm a left brain person or I'm a right brain person. Although the left brain in most people tends to be more linguistic, there's still language areas um, that are involved in language processing on the right side of the brain. It's not 100% lateralized. And, and certain people have less lateralization, meaning that they have language more distributed across the two different hemispheres. So that's another myth. Let me see. What's but, I don't know. What's some but, other myth? But yeah. even that, with that, that, though, when you, when you do the hemispherectomy thing that, or whatever mm-hmm. the procedure was you were talking about for epileptic mm-hmm. patients, there is still there is an impact to severing those ties between the two hemispheres. Oh, is, yeah. Like that, the, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But th- it's more to do with language processing. So it's that's the main thing. It's like our linguistic left side of the brain can actually speak what it's thinking or whatever whereas the right side if it's less has less language areas has to express itself in different ways like maybe it can draw what it's it's experiencing so like i said there is some differences in terms of specialization but you have to remember that most of the time our two hemispheres are communicating with each other and so it's happening across the system um you know, when you when you sever it, it's like this artificial thing. But normally, it's not severed, so it's not like everything of language is happening in the left side of the brain. It's more happening. Let's say it's happening more on the left side, but it's still fully communicating with the right side and interacting. And and you know, our language is more is more infused. Let's say with emotions when you're getting processing from the uh, right hemisphere that's integrated with left hemisphere linguistic processes. So it's all one big system. Yeah. 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 So which part of the brain lets you move a cup across a table without touching it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the no part of your brain. You know, it's really funny in this yeah. in this um in this documentary. I uh, I mean, this series. We we this we were looking at free will. We went to a lab in at Chapman University in L.A. and they were do, they're doing free will studies. And uh, but like they sort of did this little thing in the beginning where they did a little magic trick in a way where they were like, oh, like how much control do you really have? And they kind of like predicted what I, where I was going to sit or whatever. And it was all, it was like based on magic, but it looked real. Um, or like, they're like, pick any word in this book, you know, that you want. And then they had this laminated thing in an envelope and then you like open the envelope and the word is in there, you know, there were magic tricks, but we were doing it to just sort of demonstrate a point. But like with Nova, we had to say like, so this is just magic. This isn't real, right? Because like it's a science show, just to make sure everybody was on board. Like, yeah, this is just a way to demonstrate in in that we don't have as much control as we think. But that, um, but that is also an interesting point because so, so much of magic is exploiting those things that you're talking about in episode one, isn't it? Those sort of disconnects mm-hmm. in perception and the ways that your brain takes shortcuts to understanding that are exactly. useful generally, but misleading sometimes. Exactly. And like magicians talk a lot, they really do understand how our brains work and where are the holes in our attention and our perception. And, you know, in like in episode one, we go through like, why did some people see that 
dress is black and blue and the others is white and gold, right? Like, why do we see things differently? And, and magicians can exploit those, you know, differences in how we perceive the world or our gaps in attention. And oh. like, even we go through a whole thing with vision. Like, we don't, we don't really see the whole world. We see a tiny little, like, if you stick your thumb, if you stick your arm out straight and put your thumb up and just look at your thumbnail, that little amount of space is actually all your eyes ever see at any given moment. They're constantly saccading. They're moving back and forth all the time. They're taking these little samples of the world and they're stitching it together and putting it together like one cohesive visual image. But that's not actually what your brain is seeing. And so we demonstrate that. We go to a vision lab and show actually like what it really looks like um, and how, you know, our brain is just constructing this image for us that feels real, but it's not really what, what it's seeing. I didn't realize, I, I knew it's not sort of seeing the whole picture, but I had no idea that how tiny a fraction it is. So it, it really is almost like an old, like how old CRT TVs used to work, where it is just like drawing it line by line, except I'm sure it's, it's not so right, it's uh, like little... organized like that. It's more darting around, but it's mm-hmm. but it really mm-hmm. is taking tiny a tiny bit at a time and drawing it and moving it around quickly. To yep. build up this picture. Wait, yep, wait, exactly. you don't mean, obviously you don't mean that I is doing that. Like the retina is, is getting a bunch... A lot more than that, but you're saying that the brain can only be processing what's coming from the retina in sizes, in increments of that size? In focus, right? So your focus is like a little, let's say, square that size that you're, that's what your brain is seeing or processing. Which which definition of focus are we talking about? Um, Like mental focus or optical focus? You mean mean mental focus, not optical optical that's a good question that's a good question if it's just is it actually what the retina i think it's what the retina is is taking in i think that's what the the amount of information it's taking in and then processing it um Hmm. so yeah it's and then there's like the stuff that's sort of fuzzier on the edges right your peripheral vision but you know we do this in in we visualize it in the show where I, i they put me in this eye tracking machine and you can kind of see it from my perspective and they can play around with what it would be like, like what the brain is actually seeing. So I'm like looking around an image, but they're only showing the image of like where my eyes are dotting. It's very hard to explain. I'm not explaining this very well. But if, but if it, they're showing where the eyes are dotting, then it is. it must be the actual visual focus, the, right, the optical right. focus. So because that's if they're actually tracking your pupil itself. Right, exactly. So that's what it is. But, you know, what's interesting is that when, so subjectively when they have this um, – you know, it's kind of, I don't know if it's experiment or how they set this up so that wherever my eyes are looking, it will reveal that part of the image, right? So it looks, when I'm looking around this image, it feels like I'm seeing the whole thing. But what the viewer is seeing um, is only that little dot that's revealed of where my eyes are looking. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, I'm seeing it as a whole image because it's just wherever I go, it's it's just opening up that little square for me to see. So it feels like it's all one cohesive thing. But the viewers get to see what it actually is. It's like nothingness and these little dots. And then you take that information and create a whole vision in your sure. mind. Right, yeah. right. That made sense. That was very yeah. hard to explain that. Yeah. But so it's interesting that, that, you know, we don't, we're not aware of these things. It happens so seamlessly. But when you really break it down, you know, it's it's not what it seems. So are, are you of the theory then that, that um, you know, consciousness all I, I suppose the more we learn about it the more we can divide it into components um it seems mm-hmm. that like you know there's less and less mystery do you do you think we're gonna nail it at some point we're gonna say this is what this is 
Well, maybe not not during our lives, but you know. No, yeah, I'm skeptical. I think that you know, I'm of the mindset that if we can build it and we can create it, then we that helps us understand it. Like I, I think like like they're doing this stuff now with like like a organoids, like these like basically you know you take a couple of neurons in a petri dish and you grow them and you can create these. Then they start communicating, and like these organoids, like are they conscious? Will they become conscious? And you know, can we start to create consciousness outside of us and then we can maybe better understand it if we could build it. I don't know if it's going to be in these AI systems. Like I think they're they're going to be way more intelligent than us for sure um, in many ways, but intelligence is different than just experiencing a feeling like pain or like what it's like to be oh, something. Oh, yeah. I see. Because mm -hmm. like uh, arguably a calculator is more intelligent than us in the in the in field the of me yeah. mental arithmetic and uh mm, calculators can only say boobs matt calculators <laughs> well, can only say boobs to so. be honest if you listen to back episodes of this show we're we're not far off that <laughs> but uh but, but also conversely like we could argue i mean maybe you don't argue this but like do you think dogs have consciousness because they obviously are less intelligent but they might be conscious i i oh yeah no i think other animals are definitely conscious because yeah First of all, if you take a, a, a cubic millimeter of cortex and you like look at a human and a monkey or whatever, it's only like a very an expert would know the difference in terms of the architecture, the hardware. So we have similar hardware. I'm looking we at act, two right now, and it's yeah. <laughs> we act as if we're like like if a, if someone steps on a dog's paw, it'll retract it, it'll yelp, it'll act as if it's experiencing pain. Right. And we have a similar evolutionary history. So, yes, I think you don't need language for consciousness. You don't need even self-awareness. It's just pure first person subjective experience. I don't know that you're conscious. I assume you are. But like but I, but I'm. It's, it seems like, yes, a dog feels pain. Even fish. There's experiments with fish like you give it a noxious stimuli. It'll turn away from it like it'll. But if you anesthetize it so it does, its neurons don't respond to that noxious stimuli, it'll swim right into it. So before it was like feeling something. That right. it turned away. So, yeah, there's consciousness is very simple. It's very basic. But then there are these other levels like language where we can describe our consciousness and think about it in different ways. But still basic, pure sensation. It seems like it's the simplest thing, but it might be the hardest thing for a non-living creature to, to be able to create that in something that's not living. Yeah, like if, if we create something that's way more neurologically complex and a better information processor than a fish... And we think, oh no, we just got to keep making it more powerful. Then it'll get conscious. So that doesn't explain how the fish got conscious. Like, we're... right, right, right. So it maybe I don't know. This is where it gets like mystical. Like maybe it has something to do with life. Like maybe there's something about yeah. you know biology, and it evolved in these biological creatures. And maybe we can never recreate it. Maybe it's like a property of the universe. I don't know. You know, like these but are when it gets into yeah. Could that not also be synthesized? I mean, pain response and things like that of. of I mean that that's obviously still brain activity is happening. Neurons are telling you exactly what's going on. You interpret that as pain. I mean, it, it seems to me still. I'm not going to say easy um, mm -hmm. at all. I had no idea how to do it, but it still seems to me that that could be synthesized. Well, and you know, we actually again in the episode one we did a whole thing on pain, how we can like how create a feeling of pain in you that's not really pain. Like there's this this thermal grill where there's like one strip is is warm and the next like it's like a metal strip is is 
cool and then it goes warm cool warm cool and you put your hand on the whole grill and it kind of tricks your brain into feeling like it's burning hot sensation because of the way it's playing huh. the signals right um so it is just like information processing our pain doesn't happen in our body it happens in our brain right, right? our pain isn't happening when you in the leg when you break it it's a neural signal if you block that neural signal you don't feel the pain um but Yes, theoretically, if it's just information processing and you can instantiate that in something else, maybe it will feel pain, but we still don't know fundamentally why it is that, is it just information processing or is it something about the sodium and calcium channels that that are having, you know, that the information is being passed along in that is tied to consciousness, right? Right. Is it something in the substrate itself? And and if so, so, could we build a neuron? Could we do like maybe those organoids and like build it into a brain the way you would build a heart out of like heart cells? And right. maybe that will be conscious. Like I think we're closer to getting there through that. Let's build it with biological matter. Let's build neurons that can like grow and, you know, build a brain in a vat. That would sure. probably be conscious. But who knows? Maybe you need a body. You need inputs and outputs. You'd have to, you'd have to calculate that all in. You'd have to be giving that brain in a Petri dish or wherever it is inputs and outputs because another thought experiment to be struck by lightning and you know there's a lot of stuff to be done that's why you need the you need the two sort of car batteries on the neck which i haven't even seen that yet in any Mm -hmm. of these ai you know we're nowhere close no but we did wake up a pig did you know about that what they like brought a pig back from death or something i don't even know the specifics of this yeah and then they made the brain start working again it was some I, i i have to go back and look at the the study but that was like in the news yeah, um, they took like a dead pig. It was dead for like a little bit and then they like reinvigorated huh. it. I think they froze it. Maybe it was like frozen to death and then... Holy oh, oh, yeah. But my, my dumb joke interrupted you about yeah. to say there was another experiment or other experiments that... Um, no, I can't remember. I think maybe maybe it was the pig. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, we're all going to die. You can't get <laughs> yeah. How'd you naturally know how all of our episodes end? That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, folks. We're all going to die. Yeah, you really did your we're research. We're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> but, by the way, oh, yeah, j- normally one of us says that, but uh, but thank you for... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm jealous you got to do the thermal grill experiment because I, I was going to um, ask about your experience of working with... I mean, obviously, I, I don't expect you to say anything bad about the show, but I've written for a number of science shows now. And mm-hmm. when it comes to psychology, it gets so frustrating because so many things um, like there's sort of like the tendency from the producer standpoint, if it if it bleeds, it leads. But like, no, if, if it's like super counterintuitive and groundbreaking, we want to do that. And like those are the most likely experiments to get debunked and not you know, the replication crisis tears down those most interesting ones first. So it's like. The sexy ones don't always work, but we try, they tried totally. to get get us to do the thermal grill experiment, and we didn't have access to an actual like, uh, you know, you, you could wire up some metal tubes side by side to be warm and cold alternating, um, but there was like a version online. Someone said you can also do it with hot dogs. Just put half of them in the microwave a little bit, <laughs> put half in the put half in the freezer, so they're like it's a slight gradient, but it's only like six hot dogs, and maybe a small person's hand only only spans five of them. So like they did this, and then the subjects it just wasn't working. They're like. And then the producers were like, oh, okay, so we've disproved this doesn't work. I'm like, no, we're doing a shitty version with hot dogs. Like, we don't have the good equipment. Like, it does, it would work. It's if like, we a, had- like saying time travel can't happen because you drive your car fast. Right. Like, right. in your. Yeah, well, well, right, right. Uh, so check, much- <laughs> checkmate, scientists. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but you guys had the um, real thermal grill. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous. I got to check out. The... <laughs> although my son said last night, which was pretty cool. So he wants, he's six and he wants to be an inventor um, and invent Great. cool stuff. And one of the things he wants to invent is a time machine. So he said he's going to invent a time machine so he could... Um, when I get old, he can like bring me back in time. So I'll be young again. I mean, I love Aww. this idea. Yeah, he's really, it was really sweet. And he's like, so then you'll never die because I'll just keep bringing you back. And then he started getting into the whole logic of it. And it got really, it got really out there. But we, <laughs> I think he's, he's, I think he does think after me in some ways with this, like, you know, thinking just really. Well, that's because you put him to bed every thought. night by saying, and remember, we all die. We're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to be like, and listen, there's no you, way around it, son. We're all going to die. And you can have I'm two cookies next week no go to bed do it so this the, the show is called your brain it is on nova and uh episode one your perception deception is this may the 17th so just coming up in in a few days time and then a week later on may 24th is the second episode who's in control Correct. And, and also yeah. after that, thereafter, it will stream on all PBS um, apps and online. And oh, very I think cool. it also will be and, on and YouTube. So if you miss the premieres, you can still catch them. Um, and that would also, I think, for people who are overseas, I don't know. You might need to. There might be some VPN. Mm -hmm. We we we, we don't encourage the yeah. use. You know, you, you listen to the show. You know how to find it. <laughs> you've got, you've yeah, got we have ways. the most wholesome dark web users. <laughs> wait can you not get pbs in the uk because it's really annoying you can't get the bbc here i know there are some workarounds but yeah maybe i've, you do I've heard it i've heard it said uh mm -hmm. a guy a guy in the in the pub once said that there may be a way to get that using a vpn mm -hmm. but uh i wouldn't know about such things but right, there might no. potentially be ways to watch the bbc over here and pbs in the yes. in the uk and australia yes. and various other places that we have listeners potentially mm -hmm. theoretically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely It'll be on YouTube. Uh, I mean, YouTube is oh, going to be like free for all. That'll be just worldwide, right? Maybe. So I, hopefully. Yeah. Sometimes they geolock it as well. But again, there are... The, this guy in the bar said for entertainment purposes only, <laughs> you could potentially... <laughs> no, for educational purposes only. Educational yeah, purposes only. Yeah, for mind. entertainment purposes only. <laughs> <laughs> you could watch this TV show. <laughs> Heather, Heather, where else can our listeners find uh, you and everything you do? Um, so I am on Instagram and Twitter at Heather underscore Berlin. I have a website, heatherberlin.com, which I do plan to update at some point, but I think it's like, it has, it has all the basic information there. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. Come, come find me. All my, all my previous stuff, the Deepak debate, all that is on my, is on my website in the, uh, We'll put links to all media. of that as well in the show yeah. notes yeah. and on probablyscience.com, which is also where you can find our Patreon and PayPal links. And you can find us on Twitter at probablyscience, individually at Annie T. Wood, at Jesse Case and at Matt Kirshen, and probablyscience at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, and stories you'd like us to cover. But Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. And oh, thanks for having me. It was I, so much fun. Yeah. Oh, this is a lot of fun and and really entertaining and informative and i'm i can't wait to watch the show same, in a week's same. time yeah, yeah. thanks listeners, me too i haven't even in. seen it yet yeah i'm excited too <laughs> yeah. listeners you know what to do you know how to find it and we will see you next time thank you Bye. Bye.